a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. What do we want? Time travel. When do we want it? It's irrelevant. Today on the show, guys, we have my favorite theory about UFOs. Now, you've been listening for a little while. You know that my favorite theory is that they are future humans coming back in time machines. Well, this guy wrote the book on it, and he's the guy that I cite all the time. We have Dr. Michael P. Masters on the show. He wrote a book called Identified Flying Objects. That is a multidisciplinary scientific approach to the UFO phenomena. Now, Dr. Masters knows what he's talking about. He is a biological anthropologist. He's a tenured professor at the University of Montana Tech in Butte, Montana. Fascinating guy. We have an incredible conversation. We do break down some time travel paradoxes. Um, he kind of gets a little twisted, which I absolutely adore that he uh, gets this upset over uh, inaccuracies with time travel movies, uh, a Bruce Willis one in particular, not 12 Monkeys. So you guys enjoy the conversation. I absolutely adore this man and his approach to this. It was so cool getting to sit down and talk with him. You guys enjoy uh, Dr. Michael P. Masters. Welcome to Expanding Reality Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Thomas. On the show today, guys, a very special one for you, the listener, and an absolutely incredibly special one for me, your host. Uh, we have with us today Dr. Michael P. Masters. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Man, every day above ground's a good one. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Indeed. So um, I have fanboyed out on you a little bit here, and I appreciate that. Uh, he's very sweet about it. Uh, your your approach to this is uh, the one that I love the most, and we'll, we'll get down into why that is here in a minute. But um, I've easily mentioned you on probably seven of the episodes that I've released. I've, I bring you up constantly in conversation. My family's tired of hearing about it. People are tired out in the world hearing about it because there's several different versions of this idea out there. Uh, yours yeah. just happens to be my absolute favorite. And for the reasons that we'll get to here in a minute, but the way that you do it, why it's important coming from you specifically uh, is something that I respect highly. And like I said, fanboyed out here. So we'll get that out of the way. So uh, Dr. Masters, if you don't mind, just tell us a little bit about yourself for the audience that might not know you. Well, uh, I teach anthropology at Montana Tech. It's a science and engineering school in the Pacific Northwest and Butte, Montana specifically, which is an old mining town that's uh, kind of having a second boom. And um, it's been a really fun place to, to work. I've been here for just over 11 years now. Uh, came out from Ohio State where I did my dissertation and I uh, went to undergrad at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, all for anthropology and also studied French and uh, physics and astronomy early on as an undergraduate. And uh, yeah, just been maintaining a general research uh, projects, various things within my field. And then also I've always been interested in UFO questions. So about seven years ago, decided to 
start working on a, a bigger project and, and put together something centering around this time travel model. And what I refer to as the extra tempestrial model, just um, whether these, these craft and the beings that pilot them could be our distant human descendants coming back through time to study their own past. So still have a, <clears throat> a lot of obligations with mentoring and service and, and scholarship, but it's been fun to have this other avenue of research that kind of mixes it up. And like the other day, for instance, I had to record a lecture for the Scientific Coalition of UAP Studies, which is coming up this summer. And I, uh, I, I did it in this auditorium where I teach and just uh, gave my lecture. I think we were talking about uh, archaeological methods or something. And let the students go then set up all of my equipment and recorded a, a lecture about ufos and human evolution and in that context so it's it's been a fun juxtaposition and definitely uh keeps life more interesting that's for sure yeah absolutely and what i what i find most valuable about your perspective is because uh you're you're a professor of biological anthropology i mean this is a massive deal for the movement like you are lending credibility uh, to the idea. And I love, and even in your book, you mentioned that you really have an issue with the people who need to take a more uh, cooperative balance between the disciplines. And I think that that's absolutely accurate. I think that people like you that don't just hear ideas uh, that have been previously crapped on and relegated to the to, to the backwoods idiots, you know, and whoever can see this. I, I really think that there's been a shift in the movement, uh, not yeah. only with our U.S. government coming out with the Tic Tac UFO thing, which that's a whole nother deal, but, but I think people like you that really take a scientific approach to it is what the field needs. Now, I will say that, like I said, your idea of this is paramount. Uh, yours is my absolute favorite. I've asked the guests several times on shows, you know, what do you think the UFO phenomena is? Because there's several avenues you can go down with that. Uh, I yeah. do like, um, in in your book, you you break all of it down. And, and like I said, I can't recommend your book highly enough. It will, of course, guys, be linked in the show notes and anywhere else that you'd like to find them. I will put all your links in the show notes. So you guys, please click down there, go find this guy, uh, and get as in love with this gentleman and his idea as I am. So uh, let me ask you, what um, what got you started on this, on this path of this uh, book idea? And maybe just we could start with your love of UFOs or your interest in the phenomena to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I was a, a pretty young kid when I first got interested in it. As it says in the, the first chapter of the book, I overheard my dad telling some uh, of his friends that were over at our house. And um, it was kind of late at night, and he was describing this this light that was off over the horizon. And he, he was a veterinarian in Amish country, and there's no lights in Amish country, uh, hardly at all. And uh, him and a colleague crested this hill and saw it just hovering over on the horizon, assumably mutilating a cow or something, I don't know. But then suddenly it shot straight toward him and just hovered there for a while uh, just above their truck and out in front of them so they could see it and uh just as fast as it came shot back across and hovered there for a while and as he tells it darted straight up into the sky and that was kind of my first inkling that there was some alternate reality that i was unaware of this this thing that I never saw. I still to this day haven't seen anything, which I'm kind of bitter about actually. And um just gave me a sense of something else out there that I was previously unaware of. And then 
uh, I saw Whitley Strieber's book that he got not long after that sitting up. Yep, there it is. There it is. I actually framed the one. I stole it from my dad and framed it. It's sitting up on my bookshelf just to kind of remind me of that. But yeah, I think they changed the cover since then, but that, that's the original one. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it just kind of triggered this this thought with the the big eyes, the small face, the the big head. And according to Whitley, I got the chance to talk to him on his podcast a while ago. He said him and the artist kind of fought about the forehead because I, I asked him, I was like, you know, they're usually described with kind of bigger, rounder heads. He's like, yeah, we 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 had a battle about that. And um, they kind of compromised. But he, he assured me that the ones he saw did have a bigger, rounder head. Um, but it just kind of made me wonder if there's some connection uh, since the we are so similar uh, between an early hominin, a modern human, and what I presume to be a future hominin, which each have the same quintessential human characteristics, uh, even beyond the phylogenetic variation among them, just having two eyes and a nose and a mouth and a forehead all in the same place certainly suggests some sort of evolutionary relationship. So I didn't know jack all about evolution or anything else at that time, but uh, it apparently piqued my interest enough to spend a lifetime researching it. And it wasn't just because of this question or because of UFOs. I, Like I said, I've never seen anything to really spur me into action in the way a lot of people have. And many people I talk to who are contactees have this deep drive to figure out what it was that they saw and what's happening. And I mean, I, I guess I'm curious, but it's always been sort of a, a side curiosity, but I guess at the same time enough to perhaps influence my course of study at university, um, physics and astronomy, and then switching over into the human evolution side. And I actually remember the day I decided to switch just behind the big physics lecture hall at Ohio university. And it was for that reason. I thought, you know, maybe I could study the beans and not just the craft and what the craft's doing and how it might be a time machine, which I obviously had to look into a lot to write this book as well. But I uh, decided to be interesting to kind of pursue the uh, the human evolution side. And I'm certainly glad I did, even beyond this this UFO question. It's given me the opportunity to to travel and research all over the world and um, collect data in museums and very different places. To archaeological digs in South Africa, France, uh, Ohio, where I went to school out here. I've run a couple of digs um, in and around Southwest Montana. So, yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun, and I'm I'm certainly glad I chose this field of study, both in order to pursue this question, but also just because anthropology is damn interesting. It's kind of a fun field, and uh, just to get to know our ancestry and such. Uh, a deep capacity through deep time has has been a lot of fun as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, did you just see that uh, there was an article that came out today that I saw? It was actually a YouTube video about they found a finger, a fossilized finger, in Glen Rose, Texas, actually just down the street from me here. I could drive there, no problem. Um, and it was a fossilized finger that they found that was in sediment that was 100 million years old putting it about hmm. the time of the dinosaurs. Now, what's interesting about it, and I, I saw this in there, that the... the and you, what's the source on that? Because I did, I did not hear about that. And, and my instant reaction is, eh, there's a lot of 
I'm with you, with and, that, but... and I literally just saw it. So this is something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, so I'll I'll send you the video. It's actually on my Facebook. We're friends on there, so I just reposted it. It's just a YouTube video of somebody describing what happened, and they actually broke down the fact that fossils are usually flattened um, by just time and pressure. This mm. one is actually in a in a part where uh, that doesn't happen, and that round uh, roundworms have even been found incredibly old fossilized in 3d form because they're not crushed by impact so yeah. what was what was interesting about it though is that they actually cut it um, because they wanted to take a cross section of it to see if it was something else but they actually found uh scientists found a uh, bone and tendon inside there again i haven't looked into it further than just this video that i just saw maybe an hour ago it, yeah it's that's another big red flag too is if if we did have something that unique and there were that many questions surrounding it we wouldn't just cut through it right i, right. I mean we would shave off a tiny little piece and even then i mean what are you going to get out of that if it's fossilized there's no dna or anything so uh i'm not you know i'm not going to be the guy that Instantly calls bullshit without any information, but there's a lot of red flags with that one. A lot of red flags. I completely agree. I wanted to get your take on it because I thought the same thing. And it's not being released by a journal or a scientist or anything. It's just some guy on YouTube with a picture yeah, of a damn finger. Yeah. You got to watch out for that stuff. You do. You do. You always got to check your sources and use critical thinking about everything. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of weird stuff out there, man. Uh, there is, so and it's fun. It's super fun to think about, and and it's good to challenge our our critical thinking skills. We shouldn't just accept everything, but we shouldn't also just close everything out either. Um, and and you know, I, I listened to what you said, and it's presenting the information and and considering it critically. I think there's a lot of things that. I would need to look into further before making a value judgment, but um, just on the surface, yeah. And, and it, you know, it's like that with everything, like you said. Absolutely. You got you to gotta take it with a grain of salt and then kind of look into it. But even just the thought experiment initially, you know, because it's not, I didn't believe it. I'm like, oh, shit, this happened. It was more yeah. of like, a, huh, that's interesting. And if it were possible, that's where my mind goes, not, right. well, let's validate this right away. But you do have to validate it before you um, start taking it as fact, right? I completely agree. Yeah, and you don't want to waste a bunch of time either. Just saying, well, that's, I should go down that rabbit hole. You know, you might waste... Might waste uh, twenty years of your life. Who knows if if the whole UFO thing's wrong? I I definitely did that. <laughs> I jumped off into a rabbit hole. I, I certainly shouldn't have. But I I don't, you know. And like I said in my new book coming out, I I don't feel like it will ever get to that point. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this. I have I have a family, friends, job, interests, hobbies, and I definitely wouldn't spend hours and hours researching this if I didn't not only believe it's real, but one of the biggest questions of our time. So um, yeah, I think it's important to find that balance. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let me ask you this. So um, the idea of entities being us anthropologically, what, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, uh, circling back to that, uh, the cover of, of Whitley's book, it was sort of just kind of a mental image in my head. Um, I pictured this early hominin or chimpanzee like form a modern human, and then uh, the, the quintessential uh, archetypal alien form, the greys, I guess, is what they're most commonly referred to as. And um, yeah, it just kind of made me wonder if there could be a connection there. And um, so it, it, even beyond that, as I looked into it more, I kept expecting to get to the point where 
especially in grad school. I mean, I learned a lot as an undergrad, but in grad school, I kept expecting to have this moment where I was like, well, yeah, I guess that's not right. Just something that would kind of throw a wrench in the cogs. And not only did that not happen, it started to seem more and more plausible the more I learned about uh, especially what I specialized in, craniofacial evolution and in hominins and then technology and uh, just various aspects of our of our culture and how that changes over time in association with our, our physiological, morphological changes. In fact, in anthropology, we refer to it as biocultural evolution because we can't separate them. Our culture influences our biology, our biology influences our culture. So uh, to answer your question, it was just kind of connecting those dots between the past, present, and this presumed future in initially just that physical form, the craniofacial anatomy, but then eventually, as I looked into it more, even aspects of our postcranial anatomy and, and culture and technology seemed to recapitulate that idea to the extent that I, I almost felt compelled to write this book, to, to really just lay it out there and, and combine it with our current knowledge in these other fields. Because like you said in the introduction, you can't tackle something this big with just one field or just one viewpoint. And, you know, I don't, I don't see this as being mutually exclusive with other interpretations of the phenomenon. It could be a combination of things and most likely is, but this one seems to be the most parsimonious explanation in the context of us being here. Now we know that we're here now we know humans exist. And if we look at the long, history of evolution, both cultural and biological throughout the history of our species and all of the species that came before, if we project those into the future, we're likely to have technology and a physical form very similar to what are reported in the vast majority of these cases. Obviously, there's exceptions, but the vast majority seem to suggest that they are, in fact, hominin. Uh, the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Free Foundation study, which I've cited uh, I guess not in the first book. I didn't even know about it when I published that book, but I've met some of the co-authors of that and they turned me on to it. And it's a fantastic study. And uh, according to their research, they surveyed, I think like 3,300 contactees and the majority were described as human and not just humanoid or human-like, but, but full-on humans. And um, the next most common description were the tall grays and the short grays. And then it's only 5% that deviate from that who fall into the category of reptilian or insectoid or mothman or Sasquatch or toilet brush or whatever. It's just <laughs> most are, are very clearly uh, us and they look like us. And some of them even talk like us. It's not all telepathy, which might indicate that they come from a more proximate point in our future where they don't yet have that capability, whether it be, because of brain-to-brain -brain interfaces or just some aspect of the, the brain evolving itself. But I cite one case in my new book that they just hop out and start talking to this guy here, here in Montana, actually, Joan Bird, who uh, published a really good book called uh, Montana UFOs, highlights uh, a couple of these cases as well as the Malmstrom Air Force Base, which isn't too far from here. I gave a talk uh, in Lewistown, Montana, just next door to that. It's fascinating. I learned as much from them as they learned from me, I'm sure. It was so cool to talk to these people, and many of whom were in and around the base at that time. So, um, yeah, but anyway, this guy just gets out of a UFO, starts talking to this fella, and uh, gives him the tour, which is common. It describes how 
his craft works, the the anti gravity aspects and everything else. So, um, yeah, I think I think that humanness, as I've said many times, if if they were describing some spider like creature or squid octopus type thing coming out of these UFOs, I I never would have gotten interested. But because they're so uh, ubiquitously human or human like, it, it really piqued my interest. Absolutely. And even to the point of being bipedal, like that's a big one. And mm-hmm. I love in your book that you talked about that, that out of the millions of species on this planet, uh, only only one has evolved that way and it's us. And so it, it's fascinating that even, and it's not necessarily the best way to go. So tell us about no. the uh, issues about being bipedal. It is in your book, but I, I like your breakdown on it because that is something that is uh, important to the idea, right? That they're oh, yeah. not them coming from somewhere else and that being bipedal and being upright is not an optimal way to go about it, locomotion-wise. No, and um, especially because a lot of research that's come out of the, um, the uh, Planetary Habitability Society at the University of Puerto Rico at Arecibo, where... Um, the observatory just collapsed. I'm sure a lot of your listeners remember that it was just December 1st when that happened, but it's, it's been a place where a lot of data has been collected. A lot of great studies have been published, but based on, uh, I think, I think this was in the book, um, based on their 2016 data, which was the most recent I could get when I was writing it, uh, something like 26 out of 2000 something, uh, exoplanets that they discovered were, I actually remember the exact percentage. It's probably not going to match the numbers I just said, but I think it was 2.27% were the same size as or smaller than Earth, which means the vast majority, upwards of 97%, were actually much larger than our own planet. And if, if bipedalism is so difficult here, which clearly it is because we're one of the only ones that do it and we suffer from all of these problems, knee problems, back problems, herniated discs, hemorrhoids, um, hernias, varicose veins, fainting, choking, the list goes on. Um, But if we have all of these problems associated with it, the benefits must have outweighed the costs, the free use of our hands, the, the flexing of the basal cranium to allow more space within the skull for a brain to grow. All of these things were benefits of bipedalism that had some costs, what we call evolutionary trade-offs. So we've overcome a lot of those. We still suffer from knee and back problems. I just tore my MCL again uh, skiing last weekend. And uh, it's, it's this constant struggle, but it's hard here. And we're one of the only ones that do it. If it was easy, we'd expect all of these other mammals to be bipedal, but we're really the only one. So if we look at it in the context of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, we're not likely to have a, a bipedal humanoid form evolve on these other planets simply because m- the vast majority, at least the ones close to us that have been found as part of the Kepler mission and other studies, indicate that they're, they're bigger. And even with 9.8 meters per second squared gravity here, it's already difficult for us. So you add even more gravity to that, and it's going to be somewhat problematic. So this plays into that question of how likely it is that we would get bipedal humanoid life evolve on another planet with a different distance from its sun, different chemistry, possibly silicone-based 
uh, if it's part of a binary star system or the atmosphere is different. There's so many things that, that play into it. And we had a very unique evolutionary history. Things happen in just the right way at the right time. What if the asteroid never wiped out the dinosaurs? There'd be no mammalian resurgence. There would be no adaptive radiation. We'd still be cowering underground, hiding from these big hungry creatures. So there's a lot of fortuitous things that just happen to lead to us. And it's, it's irrational to think that you're going to have those exact same things happen in the exact same way on other planets. So not to trash the ETH, but there's a lot of indications that if we are talking about bipedal human or humanoid forms, it's not likely that they came from anywhere close to us. And it's, it's super unlikely that they would not only look so much like us, but happen to have technology exactly like our own, but just slightly more advanced. The, the more logical solution is, is probably that it's just our technology that's advanced further and they're coming back using it to study their own past. Yeah, yeah, and to the for the audience, ETH is the extraterrestrial hypothesis. So, um, with with that in your book as well, one of the um one of the interesting parts and why this starts to make more sense every time I think about it because this is the one thing I think about quite a bit, and it was actually your hypothesis or your proposition that made me uh, go down this rabbit hole pretty seriously because there's been a few other books written about it. I know Diane Tessman wrote one. I don't know if you've looked into the other works of other people that have written these things. Oh um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have a chapter in Diane's book. Oh okay, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, she I, she asked me to write a chapter because mine came out about a year before hers. So she had Jack Sarfati and myself uh, contribute a chapter to it. It's uh, Since Jack was doing more of the physics thing, I focused on more of the, the anthropology and the evolutionary side. But yeah, Diane's great. She's uh, She's been working on this for a long time, uh, as have a lot of other people. In fact, the first chapter of my new book, I just go through and list everybody I could find who has proposed this in one form or another, whether it be a book, an article. Uh, there's a couple songs that have been written about humans being, uh, or aliens being humans from the future. So yeah, I actually try to give a shout out to everybody because it's not just my idea. Like it arose independently as a youth, but um, after publishing the book, there's been so many people have come out and said, I've thought this forever, you know, and many of them have actually done things. They've published things. They've made things to try to contribute. So there's, I feel like there's the shift in the overall zeitgeist that needs to be acknowledged. Almost a, a collective consciousness that's growing around this. Um, and I'm just one small part of it. I don't uh, take credit in any way whatsoever, but I think um, we're all kind of working together to, to get it a little bit more uh, recognition. And, you know, like, like I said in, in my SCU lecture, actually, that might have been before we started recording, but I was uh, recording a, a lecture for the Southern, Southern Scientific Coalition of UAP Studies conference that's coming up in June. And, um, you know, talk about how it's important that we all work together, try to get past the stigma, especially in the sciences, but also just recognizing that, you know, there's been a lot of other contributions to this theory, but also that the extraterrestrial hypothesis makes sense intuitively why that would be the dominant model, because especially before we were even flying, and this phenomenon's been with us for centuries, millennia, um, it makes sense. You see this thing coming down from the sky, and the stars are up there, and the thing's coming from there, and you think, well, it must have come from those stars. So it's it's logical to assume that, but 
more we learn about time and space um, and the difficulties of, of reaching those stars and interacting with things that might have evolved there, then, uh, you know, we, we can challenge those notions or at least start to think of alternative interpretations. But it, from the standpoint of the origins of the ETH, it makes sense. They, they come from the sky. They must have come from the stars. Yeah, let's let's call it that. Let's call them extraterrestrials. But yeah, it's been good to see um, all of these other people working uh, with the same common goal and uh, contributing in different ways. Yeah, like Alan Butler's in intervention. That's a good one too. <clears throat> so one of the one of the things that's interesting about this, and you talk about the interdisciplinary uh, crossover. I'm sure that, and I don't want to assume here, but I'm I'm guessing that maybe you've been more embraced by the UFO community than you have the scientific community about taking this approach, or am I completely wrong on that? You are, yeah. You you would think that's the case, but <laughs> it's it's been funny. I thought that too going into it. I sort of assumed that. I well, you know, it's funny because I wrote the book for both, and it was extremely difficult to do to to make something that's scientific enough for my colleagues, not too scientific for people who may or may not have a background. I'm not saying everybody who studies ufology doesn't have a background by any means, but I want it to be understandable to everyone. So I couldn't use too much esoteric jargon. I had to explain the terms that I did use. Um, so yeah, I expected all my colleagues to flip me the bird and say, yeah, no, this guy's gone off the deep end. And then the UFO community to be like, Hey, uh, yeah, all right, that makes sense, or we could at least consider that. And no, I did. Um, I uh, naively came into it thinking there was more open-mindedness, which there is, and I found that there's there's two camps, three or four camps actually, but I won't get into the details of my own opinion on the UFO community. But there is definitely a really strong movement within this community to try to have more scientifically fastidious approaches that garner more respect uh, even outside of the ufo community and that that is happening and we see that happening more and more um and professors and scientists and researchers in various capacities help uh, military pilots journalists there's a lot of people contributing in this realm but um yeah i was surprised because i gave a talk i did a little book tour about a camper uh, pulled the kids out of school for a month and just traveled around the West Coast giving talks and going to conferences. And the very first one I did was a MUFON group in Portland. And uh, that's where I first got my glimpse of this divide in these different camps because the, the, the very first thing said was, nope, I don't yeah. believe any of it. <laughs> I was like, what? you know, I explained all of these things. I thought very clearly it was just like, no, nope, mm-mm not buying it and uh but then there was another guy who already had the book who was like well hang on hang on and then this other couple i just met it were really nice and super fun to talk to and they were you know we had this conversation but it took like it took me changing how i understood their understanding because i didn't have that like i understand my scientific colleagues i've been writing for them my entire academic life i know what they're going to yell at me about and what they're going to be happy about. And in that process of peer review humbles you early on, the reviewers are just mean with the things they say. So you get used to that, but I wasn't expecting, uh, this, this instant dismissal because it violated 
a preconceived notion of what this phenomenon is. There's a lot of dogma. Oh yeah. As it turns out. And it, it's been good because then I went and gave a talk at the 50th anniversary, uh, for MUFON down in, um, Irvine, California, not long after that, same thing. It's like, no, mm -mm, not having any of it. And I was really, really surprised to see that, but it's been good too, because it's forced me to think about things in different ways. And that's what, that's what science is, you know, and, and this, if we are going to move forward with this, it should be an aspect of, of ufology as well. We should all be considering new things, but also saying, I don't know. What about this? What about this? What about this? And, and that's a big part of why I wanted to write this new book too. It's not a revision of the old book. It's completely different, but it incorporates a lot of things that I've learned or different viewpoints and interpretations that I've come across as a result of talking with so many people about this over the last couple of years. And that early, uh, early lashing from the MUFON people <laughs> was definitely uh, good for that. But on the other end, my academic colleagues came out in droves for the book release. I'd say 60% of people there had some higher degree from some institute of higher education, the, the chair of my department, the dean, the vice chancellor, the chancellor were all like, hey, I saw you know, a Fox News story about you, or I saw you on this or that. And uh, we're super excited about it. And I didn't expect that. I kind of thought they were going to crap all over it and kick me out and um, tarnish my name and uh, fumigate my office. I don't know what happens when someone gets kicked out of university, but it's been the opposite. They, they Actually, somebody asked me to teach a class, uh, an honors class at my university recently. I was going to so, ask you about that. I'm I'm interested in that concept and that idea, and I want to explore that with you. But going back to what you said about um, so about it being a dogma first, and then I had something else I wanted to ask you as well. Um, so Diane Pasolka wrote a book called American Cosmic. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Uh, actually, I think we published our books right around the same time. You I was, did. I, I saw her kind of working toward publication. I actually delayed mine a little bit because, you know, competition, but also who wants to, you know, try to compete. And, and if we're both professors trying to enter this realm i felt like it was uh it'd be rude yeah to try to do that That's very um cool. I, I still haven't had the chance to read her book yet but i i definitely i've heard some interviews and respect her her viewpoints and um it's it's wonderful it's it's a great it's a great book and and it's it is cool that both of you are professors and um you know she's a the, theologian uh and she actually uh takes the i learned the word hierophany from her book uh which she then compares uh roswell to a sort of jerusalem you know that's where these people who form these ideas about ufos and then they stick to them like their religious beliefs like she even yeah. says in the book that uh, ufo phenomena or aliens is the new religion which right. i think is an interesting perspective back to what you said um because i do agree with that now i think one of the biggest issues in the movement and with any movement actually across the board is people that like to like i say plant their flag people are like nope this is what it is this is what's going on i've spoken to several of them and it's that cognitive dissonance that bugs me the most about a topic uh, in any respect but also a topic to where we're pushing it forward we're moving forward with new ideas yes we we get it they could be from zeta reticuli but to say that they are, you know, other extraterrestrials coming over here from space or from interdimensionals, I, I think that the phenomenon is um, 
shocking in a way that it will it will kind of surprise you. Every time you think that you've gotten it figured out, it surprises you again. And there's an elusive quality to some of it. But I do think, yeah. uh, to your point, that yours is the one that, the more that I think about it, the more it makes more sense than aliens from other star systems coming here. And to the point in your book when you talk about Einstein and time dilation and the distances between planets and star systems and how challenging it is to get there. One one argument for that is that, you know, it's not hard for them, right? They've figured out this way of blinking out here, blinking in here, a, yeah. a, a way of breaking physics as we know it, but it's not necessarily breaking physics. It, it might just be to them just uh, going to the corner store or something. Yeah, we can just do this. That's one of the answers to that question of why would they do something that's so hard and the answer is to them it's not hard right um but like i said but to the point of the fact where you point out in your book all the anthropological parts of it the skull uh the uh bipedalism the, all of these things the more i listen to your argument on it the more i love it i think it it's one of my favorites for sure if not my favorite and i've said this again i've mentioned you on several shows and um I always say that your opinion on this and your observations for the reason of your background and for because it's so insightful, I think that that's one of the best ones, man. It's it's my favorite. If I had to plant my flag, it would be on your idea. Yeah, and I think it's okay to to have a starting point or or something that tethers you to a specific idea it's not there's nothing negative about that it's just when when the dogma and the, the cognitive dissidence comes into it like you said where if you can't see beyond that if you put your flag at the end of where you're willing to go with your mind and never walk past that flag it becomes a very big problem and not just with ufos with everything i see it within paleoanthropology as well um, you know, and, and like mentioning that, that fossilized finger bone earlier, that's way beyond where my flag is, but I was still willing to consider it until I had more information. Um, but e even within the circumscribed boundary of all of our relative metaphorical flags, we don't go far beyond that at all. Somebody has a new species, the, the one that came from the rising star cave in South Africa. Uh, I guess it was five or six years ago, but Lee Berger and his crew found these fossils and, and they went about it differently. They didn't do the, I'm going to sit on these for 10 years. I'm going to publish in nature and science. They did an open access journal. They had this team of researchers that came, but they didn't do it the way they were supposed to. And everybody was like, what's going on here? You know, homo naledi is what it was called. And they got international acclaim, their research, the, it's a new species. It's considered a new species. and it's good. You know, it's good to have that pushback to some extent, but we also need to recognize when the facts are overwhelming and we need to acknowledge that and try to move forward. But it, it is harder with UFO phenomenon because of so much of it just being ethereal. There's, there's not tangible data with so much of this. We can see the Tic Tac videos. We can break down what they're doing, the speeds, the the acceleration, deceleration, and and that's great that we have that. We didn't even have that a few years ago. Yeah, uh, we didn't have it. It's in just public fuzzy view. videos. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and there's public consensus now that this is real. That's an awesome starting point, and and we moved the flags farther as soon as that happened. And back in April, when the the Department of Defense acknowledged the reality of these, so we're gonna keep that going. 
Um, I think inevitably that's going to happen, but you're still going to have a certain camp. There's going to be the religious ones, like like you mentioned, and uh, Dr. Posolka mentions. There's going to be ones who just carry it as a belief system, and that's fine. You know, it's no crazier than any other belief system that people have. That's um, a fair point. Yeah. If it adds to their life, then sweet. You know, you can believe whatever kind of chicken monster created us. <laughs> Flying spaghetti monster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If that's your thing. Um, but we have to separate that belief system from science. And uh, I feel that that is happening in the UFO community. I'm, again, somewhat new to this. It's just in the last two and a half years that I've been interacting with this community but i've been excited to see that i feel like there's a lot of hope because there's a lot of uh really logical grounded intelligent people who are trying to understand this as much as anybody else so uh i see myself as just one tiny part of that and 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 i acknowledge over and over again that that ufologists play a role in this it's not just going to come from scientists it's not just going to come from engineers and government but the people that know the most about this field are the ones who've been studying it for decades and living in the shadows and uh, researching these things with even with the stigma and shame that surrounds it but they're gonna they're gonna be one of the most important assets so i think we should definitely acknowledge the role that that research plays and and there are a lot of people who are are weeding through different abduction accounts and reports and and realizing that some are made up, some are lies, some are something else, but there are a lot of them that are real things that deserve to be studied. And I commend them for that and for doing it for so long with that stigma that hangs over it, especially. Absolutely. And even Jay on Hynek <clears throat> of Project Bluebeam, of course, and Sign and Grudge, he um, yeah. eventually, you know, founded Sufos at the end of his life there. And he was on the camp that it's kind of a psychological phenomenon. I know Jacques Vallée, um, you know, a few other people, Terrence McKenna as well, kind of have that idea that it's kind of a psychosomatic phenomenon, or that's one of the possibilities that it could be. So now let's talk yeah. about possibilities. And what I like about your work is that you don't say that this is what all of them are, because like you said, there's there's been some different uh, things about it. There's been some uh, folks that have seen reptilians, and of course we've talked about the man, uh, the mantis beings and all of that. But then you then you look at folks, and who cares where they say that they are from? Because if I was a time traveler from the future and I came in a time machine, maybe you don't want to reveal the, that fact. And maybe it's easier to tell the people that you are from a star system because we're not capable of that. So therefore, you could say that. Uh, and then maybe it won't influence people's idea of it or their perceptions of it. And that would be a way of instituting perception management on the phenomena if you were a time traveler. And to the point that you said that they were more like us, like the Billy Meyer case where, you know, they're Palladians or whatever. And they, they say we come from this star system and we've came here. Well, they could have come from New Jersey, you know, a, a million years in the future, even a few thousand years in the future. Who knows? Because it is yeah. time travel is theoretically possible. And I want to uh, break down time travel with you here in a minute. But to to the point of that, you don't say that this is all of them. Right. Because even if it is future humans coming back in time machines, that doesn't rule out the fact that there could be other beings from other star systems or interdimensional beings or any of that interacting with this as well. And I like that. Like, you're not saying this is what all of it is. It's just this is one possibility for this one type of entity that we see. 
Yeah, and I'll I'll be the first to admit that the the reptilian and mantid and mothman and even Sasquatch, Yeti, Bigfoot, which more and more seems to be associated with this phenomenon. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Um, is it extraterrestrial? Is it interdimensional? Is it a conscious manifestation, subconscious manifestation? So, yeah, I'm not trying to offers something that explains everything in concrete terms because a lot of it i think even once we know for sure what it is is still going to remain unexplained um even if they are from the future and they plop down later in 2021 and say yeah it was us the whole time uh, i mean are they going to be able to explain mothman and bigfoot I, i i hope so i hope we get a little bit of everything from them but who knows and that's a good point. I mean, maybe they could glean into the phenomena. Make it, maybe they could come back and say, hey, we figured out about you know, 80 years, 80,000 years from where you guys are now that it's actually all of you guys creating this. It's a co-collective creative. You're all using this, your mind in this way, or it was the earth, and the earth kind of manifests these things. Um, it's kind of like uh, you know, when plants grow to look like other animals so that they don't get predated on. So you've got like the moths that have the eyes on them, you know, uh, that resemble owls when they open so that owls don't eat them uh, or birds or whatever. And even uh, plants that are predated on um, will evolve flowers to look like birds that eat the insects that would predate on them. It's, it's a, it's a fascinating thing that nature does and we don't understand all of it. Excuse me. <clears throat> so no, um, and you've got you've got mimicry absolutely in the biological realm. Um, to to kind of investigate that further, are you saying that you think it's kind of um, some sort of conscious mimicry where we're we're trying to understand things? And I mean that that's part of the psychocultural hypothesis is that we anthropomorphize a lot of things and. Um, add humanness to it but that that's an interesting idea i haven't heard that before uh, i just thought of it actually um but it's it's something that during during our conversation i was thinking about and it may be something because i i know that this this position um like john mack and these these guys have come up with these ideas that that kind of speak to the idea that maybe it is all just a manifestation you know maybe it is all just something that in a way that we don't understand yet how it's possible but if you look at nature itself and what the earth produces with mimicry as you put it um then maybe there's some different level to mimicry that we haven't began to understand yet that we observe with our eyes that's unexplainable because the interesting yeah. thing about the ufo phenomena and i don't know if you if you look back at early reports about it i mean early early reports there there have been like the 1554 uh incident that happened over in nuremberg i believe and it was this firefight that happened and the way that they described it was like cones and um, balls and so they didn't have the vernacular to be able to describe it in a way of technological right so and it always seems to step one one step out of our understanding and it's kind of like in your book when you said that they they start looking like they come from space the second that we are able to reach space or even just mm-hmm. a little bit before because um in you know uh 47 with kenneth arnold sighting earlier on in the year and then you had of course roswell in uh july 7th i believe uh, of that year as well that's when they start to take on this spacecraft type of uh, look to them but they yeah. seem and this is why the the idea of it being psychosemantic is uh, so validated is because it just seems to be one step out of our 
capabilities as a society, right? We can conceptualize it, but we can't do it yet. Like we can fly, but we can't make discs fly. Um, so it's interesting, or we haven't been told that we can make discs fly because there's this whole secret space program element to this. But and that's interesting too. I I just like the thought experiments and the ideas, man. I I live in a world of possibilities where I like entertaining these types of things yeah, and I philosophize me too. It's about. Super fun. Well, what's, what's awesome yeah. about your approach in it, and I think that this is what's interesting too, and the reason I asked the question about were you embraced, because I didn't think that you would be fully embraced by either side, but I knew, I, I wish I could have talked to you before you launched out to, to tell you that. Like, hey, some people are going to think you're full of shit, and they're going to be very upset that you're not telling them that they're the Palladians, or that they're interdimensional beings, or that they're from hollow earth. They're going to be very upset at you for yeah. that. Yeah. I know, and I'd say I wish you would time travel back to do that, but since you didn't, I know that's not <laughs> going to happen and right. is impossible. Right. But yeah, no, that would have been, I should have hired like a UFO consultant before I published the book. Someone who's deep in the weeds that can be like, yeah, dude, don't yeah, they're gonna... talk to those guys. But um, no, that's, that's really funny. But there's an overlapping crowd, and I think that you're going to find this with both. And I think that this is where the Venn diagram, you're right there in the middle, and I'm right there with you, I'm just not with the scientific background. I'm on the other side of the closer to the UFO community, still very science-minded, and I love the idea. Uh, but I would say that, um, yeah, there's, there's going to be... This is what's going on, and I know exactly, and I've talked to those people, and it's unfortunate. And then scientifically, no, there's no way in hell, but then you read a book like Holographic Universe or An End to Upside Down Thinking, and you realize that there's a ton of stuff out there, scientists that have put this idea forward. Even Russell Targ with his um, Psychic Warrior, you know, when he was doing the remote viewing stuff for the CIA, and he had Yuri Geller and Pat Price and those guys doing things that scientists have for years been saying isn't possible. So you're you're that beautiful blend in the middle, and a Diane uh, Pasolka as well. You guys are the ones that I am excited to kind of cross the lines and come together to where we can discuss these ideas in a way where your background and knowledge benefits the movement. I've got a little bit to contribute with the ideas and things like that. But I, I think that the marrying of the two, and it's like you said in your book, the disciplines cooperating together, like the science and philosophy, the physics and philosophers coming yeah. together, that's where the magic is going to happen. And I, I get excited with the movement the way it is now because of people like you. And this is another reason I think that you are so fantastic specifically, even though I, I could list several, but you're my guy that I kind of go to with this. Whenever well, I give it time, I'll, I'll let you down at some <laughs> no. point. Just wait. I'll fail you miserably before long. I don't long. think so. And I'll tell you why, because you've already done it just with the first book you wrote on the subject. And I knew it, I know it took you a while to do, but you wanted to seven make sure. Seven years. Yeah. It took seven years to rate that bastard. Well, but you did it right. I'm telling you, man. And guys, it's linked in the show notes. If you're not buying this right now, just go buy the damn thing. Push pause, go buy it, come back. Uh, so I, I wanted to ask you then just to have a little bit of fun with it, because I'm curious about your ideas on um, uh, paradoxes and stuff like that. So to what we said at the beginning of the episode about the fossilized finger, could it be possible uh, that if time travel is a thing, and we're just going to go ahead and suppose that for this example, uh, that a future human that's most human-like, right, that's not more gray and not more anything, they're more Palladian, like what we were talking about, like they could walk among us and have no problem blending in. Uh, could it be that a future human uh, came back in a time machine, uh, was out taking a leak, you know, and then got left, and then died, and then was fossilized, about 100 million years ago when they were back doing some investigative work, they were doing some archaeological studies, 
and then they died, they turned into a fossil, and we find that thing 100 million years later. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that humans have been around for 100 million years evolutionarily. Right. It just simply means that it's possible, if time travel is real and exists, uh, that somebody came back, either got dropped off, or was like, you know what, this time's cooler, I'm just going to hang out here, and died, and then was fossilized. With dinosaurs. Hang out yeah. with 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 dinosaurs. Yeah, maybe he found a dope, you know, triceratops and they became good yeah, friends. Yeah, they're best buds and Yeah. got married, built a little cottage. They just hung out, they went on adventures together, you know, yeah. they um solved dinosaur mysteries together, you know. That would make an awesome children's book, by the way. I think it would, How right? How fun would that be? I'm actually working on a children's book right now, so we'll we'll put a pin in that. But uh All that's right. that's part of the theme, but we'll talk about it later. So, um <laughs> It's just interesting you brought that up, actually. The synchronicity is pretty cool. So mm -hmm. as far as paradoxes go, uh, that's, that's an interesting one, right? Well, it, yeah. And, and within the context of backward time travel, you could absolutely have those things happen. Um, you know, Igor Novikov, uh, uh, who I cite throughout the book, because I think he's contributed almost more to anybody up to this point with regard to how we would understand paradoxes, consistency paradoxes and, and others. Um, but yeah, as he says, in the presence of a time machine, nothing is before or after anything else. You can have a, a future cause elicit a past effect. And um, I, I became aware recently in a podcast I did of, of archaeological uh, artifacts that seem out of place. There's a word for it. I can't Oopons. remember what they are. Oopons. What is it? Yeah, Upots. yeah, Upots. Yeah, it's, it's an out, acronym, it's right? Of, yeah, it's out of place artifacts, is what that yes. stands for. Yeah. Yes, thank you for that. Sure. Um, so, yeah, these Upots, you know, could potentially be that same sort of thing. With that finger, uh, specifically, <laughs> we're kind of dealing with it on the other end, as we talked about before, with it, it being too old to be humans, and especially where it is, uh, since we didn't leave Africa until two, min two million years ago. But by all accounts, they're not most likely able to go back that far. It kind of seems like just from the way the physics of this would work that they need to, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, that they need to be able to travel at a very high speed, which clearly they can do while those light cones are oriented toward the past in order to travel deeper into the past. Otherwise, you're just moving into the past at the speed of, of normal life, essentially. So it, in order to get to that point, in their evolutionary past 100 million years ago i just i don't think that's attainable with any technology uh, you know to say that is is blasphemy because these things can really do whatever they want seemingly at least based on our current position in time and with our technology but as you said it's always going to seem just out of reach um but yeah I, I don't think that they could go back that far but when we're talking about things from 10,000 years ago, even maybe 100,000 years ago, they might be able to reach those periods of the past. So yeah, maybe they left something behind, maybe somebody got out to pee, maybe somebody fell in love with the, you know, a homo erectus yeah, uh, man or woman sweet from hair, that yeah. time period. Yeah, there, there's a really great movie called um, Quest for Fire that shows it doesn't involve time travel. It's just a group of Neanderthals when we coexisted with Homo sapiens 
Uh, I say that as if I'm. I know. I was about to say, yeah, you took the side of ne- you're, so you're from Neanderthal. <laughs> yeah, I, okay. I mean, I've got a little. I wouldn't bit have pegged of you for that. I'd have gone more it's bonobo, all, but yeah. It's all coming out, right? I I feel very Neanderthal sometimes. <laughs> um, but no. So the, this group of Neanderthals goes out on a quest for fire. They can't make their own. They run into um, these Homo sapiens, who actually the the main character was um, uh, from Cheech and Chong. I forget his name. Was it Cheech or Chong? It was Cheech, Cheech Marin, uh, Cheech, Cheech and, Marin, yeah, yeah. So Cheech Marin's daughter is actually the lead character in this, and and she's naked the whole time. In Sweet. case anybody, I'm on it. That spurs anybody into actually watching it. Um, but they kind of fall in love, and she teaches him how to make fire. And he's like, "Sweet, I could have just done this the whole time." Um, and shares a lot of that Upper Paleolithic technology with this group that's still kind of in the Middle Stone Age, and. Um, but yeah, it, it could be that same thing going back in time where you come across these groups that have this primitive technology. And, and we always talk about backward. What about forward? You know, maybe, maybe that'll be the next book. What's it going to be like if they start taking us into the future and we're those primitive Neanderthal like creatures just kind of schlepping around the streets looking, you know, re- ridiculous the entire time. But um, I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd love to be that person. I guess that comes from a place of desire more than anything, but yeah, maybe they fell in love with uh, Homo erectus and uh, decided to stay and brought a couple of things with us. They probably wouldn't be allowed to, but maybe they, you know, snuck some snuck fancy in, yeah. futuristic technology down the front of their pants as they were <laughs> getting dropped off and, and boom, you find that, you know, hundred thousand, 200,000 years later. And it's one of these upas or upas. Yeah. U- Upas, yeah. So yeah, and again, in the presence of a time machine, all those things are possible. But I do think there's an upper limit to how far back they can go. But what if the upper limit is just simply because, from our perspective, like we can conceptualize time travel, and even physics says that it's temp- it's theoretically possible. Which means, of course, if it's theoretically possible, and you you have that great quote in the book about how humans will figure it out. Uh, if it's possible, we'll do it, right? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask, so <clears throat> if, if it is theoretically possible, and if the reason that we say that we can only go back so far is based on our current understanding, what if we figure something out in the future that extends that to infinite? What if we can go back to when the Earth was being formed and kind of fly over up top of it and check that out? And what if we figure out the time is not really what we think it is? It doesn't move linearly, like, we, like from our perception, which it has to, and that it's really more stacked on top of each other. You know, I had an idea um, on a show, same organic way that I talked about the mimic thing, about what if that um, it's actually just another dimension. And instead of um, time being something linearly as we uh, view it from our perception, that it's actually just dimensions that are a few uh, frame rates out of sync with ours. And all all the dimensions are, are individual slices of our one timeline. So it all happens forever at infinitum or whatever. And in an infinite universe of possibilities, and that's possible theoretically. So what if yeah. we figure out not only maybe it's not necessarily traversing time. It's jumping through dimensions in that way. And so therefore it's all off the table. It's all possible then, right? Theoretically. Theoretically. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've been researching these things for a long time and there's still no physical indication that higher dimensions exist. And there, there's the same issue in the same way where I was talking about the problem of beings evolving on a different planet and what characteristics they would have. If we're talking about different dimensions where they have maybe six dimensions of space, four dimensions of time, if they're evolving in those 
in, in that scenario, they're going to look completely different, unrecognizable, or they might have, I mean, how would you even conceptualize that? And that's one of the problems that we have in even thinking about higher dimensions is it's really, really difficult to even conceptualize. Um, my dog agrees with me. Yeah, oh, he, I heard he the, hates uh, the, idea the peanut crowd, of, yeah. Of higher dimensions. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, and we still, it, the fact that we haven't proven it, we, we can't, even observe them we don't know what the laws of physics would be in them we even if we we did jump in between them it there's there's a lot of issues i I go into more of this in in my next book and in the same way that i'm not just trashing the eth i don't necessarily trash the interdimensional hypothesis either but there are some very important logistical issues that i think need to be considered so i i just try to raise those but with that said i wouldn't be surprised if if this sort of all-encompassing consciousness that seems to transcend our four dimensions of space and one dimension of time as we see from people that have had near-death experiences and our dream state uh psychedelic experiences it really indicates that our our consciousness isn't necessarily just bound to the same mundane three dimensions of space one dimension of time so so even though i don't think the physical aspects of ufos has anything to do with interdimensionality i wouldn't be surprised if there there wasn't some sort of fifth dimensional consciousness aspect to it yeah because when you talk about like flatland which you do bring up in your book and i love that idea by the way <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, it it seems, though, that uh, what if and, and we're just, of course, speculating wildly here. And I love doing this on the show, especially with people like you. So uh, what if that is the thing? What if there are higher dimensional beings? And the reason that they look like us is because they're able to see us as if they're looking at a comic strip laid out in front of them on a two dimensional from their perspective, two dimensional, even though from us, it's three. And yeah. they're looking at this comic strip and they're able to go, OK, we need to change into that form right there. So we blend in a little better. And then they can basically put on a human suit, like in Men in Black and Edgar suit, and then they come here in these fantastical, you know, vehicles, which may be the way that they have to transverse realities. It may not. It may just be a convenient way for them to stay right ahead of our perception. And uh, that's how they're able to do it. And maybe that's what, yeah. from their perspective, time travel is, and that's why it's easy for them. They just flip the page a little bit to a different time and go, there. And then they zoom into it, kind of like the chalk drawing in Mary Poppins, if I could be extremely reductive. Um, but I, I like that idea. I think that it's interesting. I think it's fun. And I like talking yeah. about these ideas with you because it's And, and awesome. I think it should be considered. I, Dr. Irina Scott has often made similar um, propositions that they're, they're kind of shapeshifters in a way that they can manifest themselves in whatever form. And I, I tend to look at it more in their manipulation of our our memories and consciousness because they oftentimes will show themselves as owl creatures or monkey men with Terry Lovelace. And um, so, so I think it's more imposing that retrospectively on the memory of that event. I don't think they actually shift into these physical forms. There does seem to be a physical aspect to it, which kind of plays into the simulation thing too. And one argument against it is that there is this physical state and is that, you know, something that's a computer simulation that makes us feel this thing as being physical when it's really not, who knows? And, but I, I definitely don't discount what you just said with regard to 
um, them being able to manifest themselves in whichever way they see fit to interact with our world. Right. But again, you're kind of adding layers of uncertainty to something that doesn't necessarily need to be there. And, and I know I overused the term parsimony, Occam's razor, but if we are going to understand this in the simplest terms, us now progressing, future, them, technology, physical form, these things are all still tied to an existence that we understand in physical reality. When we start talking about extra dimensions that we have no proof of, and most physicists actually don't think they even exist, jumping in and out of those or shape-shifting, which isn't something anything in our physical reality can do, it, it adds extra layers of complexity that I think take away from the argument being made. But again, we should absolutely consider everything and put it on the table. I just, I, I tend to sort of pull back to this, uh, I, I plant my flag, as you said earlier, around what we can know and what we know now. But I'm not willing to just discount things that we will know in the future that we can't know now either. And, and with this phenomenon, and that's why it, it keeps being surprising and keeps manifesting itself in different ways, because there's so much that we just can't understand about it based on our limited viewpoint in this snapshot of time that we have. So I'm, I'm not going to make any blanket statements about one thing being one way or the other, but from this vantage point, it just seems like the simplest answer doesn't involve interdimensional beings. It doesn't involve shape shifting, but it, we could find out eventually that I was completely wrong about that too. Well, and it, and not even completely wrong. Just like I said, I speculate on ideas, and I and I like the unknown unknowns, right? The things we don't even know that we don't even know. And so yeah, I exactly. kind of come at it from an ideological, um, an ideological part for that. That's kind of the philosopher's mind in me. I I understand Occam's razor, and I get that the simplest answer is always the best. But it, you know, our perception has changed so much since we started existing and walking around and. Um, you know, we anthropomorphize a lot. We do a lot of things. So what I find that's interesting about the perspective of, of what I just said was, is that maybe someday in the future, and to the point of the phenomena itself, whenever I look at it as a whole, and you take all the ancillary type of a, uh, phenomena associated with it, it's not just craft. It's light beings. It's Bigfoot. It's all kinds of stuff. So it's it's possible. And, and that's what I like to do. Is it's just the possibilities. That's what I enjoy. Because it, yeah. like you said, I can't be... Uh, proven, but it can't be disproven either, right? Well, it kind of sounds like you found that happy medium where it's both a belief system and something that you think critically about. So you'll your belief allows you to entertain ideas and you'll kind of hone in on certain things that make sense, but also have this broad awareness that there's there's unknowns about unknowns. I think that's a good place to be. Yeah, and and my belief is is that, uh, that if I had to say it, it would be more of a possibility. And there's a, a guy named Dr. Uh, David Eagleman who's fascinating, and I think you would like him a lot too. It's just um, very very interesting. And he coined the term possibility, and it's basically the way he referred to it in the video was is that we we know too much about religion to say that that's the only way, and then we don't know enough about our world, spirituality, and things to say that it doesn't exist. So I exist yeah. in that place. And um, I, I like to say that I have ideas, not beliefs, um, because ideas are easy to change based on new information. Beliefs yeah, are exactly. very hard to change, and that's why I stay the hell away from beliefs. I've, I've found myself that possibility in pocket uh, is a nice place to be. So uh, what is your favorite uh, time travel paradox? And I know we're going to wrap it up here soon. 
Like your favorite one, the most fun say, thing to think about. Uh, you know, it might sound like a cop out, but honestly, all of them. I I I feel like the brain strain that comes with trying to wrap your head around them. Like like before we went live, um, you can say that for something recorded before we started recording. Um, we've been alive this whole time. We've just been, we have been alive and we'll put it as out far later. as we know. I mean, we could find <laughs> uh, out could, that this is we all talk about a that simulation. Too, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, there's, there's, uh, um, uh, as we were talking about before we started, I actually don't remember what we were talking about. And you wouldn't remember either. I, I was fanboyed out. You. No, I was saying how cool you are and how I'm going to try not to lose my shit on the show with you. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't remember. I guess I lost my train of thought, which is funny that that really doesn't happen to me too much. What was the last thing we were talking about? Uh, time travel paradoxes. And you said they're all your favorite, oh, which I yeah. agree with. Maybe you time traveled and back and snapped that out of your memory. And um, that's that's proof of time Did. travel. Just I wasn't happened on supposed show. to know <laughs> right? what my it's favorite was. Yeah. <laughs> no, I got it. I'm back on track. I appreciate it. I just needed a jog, sure, as it sure. turns out. But before we went live, I'm just going to go with it. Okay. Um, we were talking about how you know you can get in this headspace where you're you're thinking about these things. It just completely takes you out of reality for a period of time. And um, that happened to me so much when I was writing this book, and especially these two chapters on time and time travel and time paradoxes. And then I come back to it in the last chapter, chapter eleven or twelve, I can't remember, but. Like I would go home from work. I just walk out of my office, and and our university sits up on top of uh, an old volcano. It's on a butte, actually, which is why Butte's named Butte. And it overlooks this massive valley, and all these peaks are coming up. And I would walk outside and just have a sense that I was not a part of that reality at all, because because these time paradoxes and the way your brain has to just bend and warp and even to be able to understand them and especially to write about them in a way that makes sense to other people which is what we try to do as authors is to convey information in a way that's understandable um yeah really really just took me out into this realm that it's so fun to explore so I don't know if I can list one. I, I really feel like every time, and it's been a love of mine since I was a kid. I, I remember getting Paul Davies' book called About Time uh, at a young age, and, and I would just reread paragraph. I mean, I have a learning disability, so I have to reread stuff a lot, but I would I would go over it because it was interesting. I was like, I really want to get this. You know, it really challenged my way of thinking and uh, probably created some dendrites connected in ways that they hadn't been before. Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, it might sound like a cop out, but I, I love every single one and, and the, the weirder they are, the, the more I like them. And, and it's unfortunate now, like I can't watch a lot of science fiction anymore because they don't even try, or if they do try, they just have no idea what they're talking about. And they'll try to create these scenarios. I'm just like, nah, I can't. Yeah. I can't do it. And he, I, I'll go grab a beer to you know, smoke something and try to change my perception. I just, it, it just it pisses me off. Like I, I went to bed angry a couple <laughs> weeks ago because I was watching this show that somebody recommended to me because it was about time travel. And I just got pissed. I yeah. was like, uh-uh, they seriously did that? Like, <laughs> come that is, on. Yeah, come on. You can do better than this. You know, this isn't a well, low-budget they film. Not, but they're not... Bruce they're Willis not, is in this. How'd oh, you get that Bruce Willis shit. to do this? Uh, you're not, oh, you're not so talking about mad. Looper, are you? I don't remember what it was called. Looper, the movie where they're gangsters and they come back in time. Spoiler alert. Uh, yeah, Looper. You didn't like that? 
Oh, I fucking hated it. Dude, no. I think that that is one of the cooler ones because of the idea of the concept as far as the reason that they come back in time. I thought that that's what was interesting. The reason was it. awesome. Yes, that's what the I mean. reason was awesome. What were the, the issues the, you had with it? The plot was delightful. Loved it. That's what I mean. Um, yeah. But God, no, you're gonna ruin was, this movie it, for me, aren't you? We're we're gonna we're gonna ruin it for everybody if okay. we talk about. It. I can't Let's explain do it. why I hated it without all of the spoilers. You're so, so. upset. No, no, no. Don't worry, about it. guys. It's been out for like ten years. If you haven't seen this, turn this off right now. Go watch it. Whatever. Read Michael's book and come back. But go ahead. I want I want I want to hear this from you. All right. What pissed me off about Loopers? <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that, that this is what we're talking about now. I can go. All right. So man. so Bruce Willis comes back. Once, as you know, himself, he's shot or whatever, and it's been a month or so since I've seen this. I'm probably fuzzy in some things. Okay. And he, like, kind of, he, he dies, and then he sees that it's him, but he gets all the gold, so he's like, sweet, got all this gold. <laughs> but then he comes back another time, and he raises his head up, he's turned around he's him his past self sees that it's his future self but then bruce willis as the guy's future self and we probably lost all of your listeners at this no we have not if they haven't seen it they're they're gonna be like what the hell are they talking about um but then he turns around so he gets shot in the back and the gold protects him yes uh whether it would or not i don't know it depends on the caliber of this gun which looks like a pretty serious gun some futuristic gun and gold's very soft it's probably gonna go straight through that and blast a hole in him i'll go with you on that i'll go with you on that but then he throws a bar of gold which is also laws of physics i don't see how he could just heave this thing hit the guy right in the head and then go steals his gun steals his truck runs away goes on to live this beautiful life with all of this gold that he got from surviving himself killing himself but then goes back and and something different happens. It's not consistent. It's not self-consistent. And I, I'm not I'm trying not to give away too much about how it actually ends, but give it away. They switch it again. They switch it. So which one is it? Which one is it? Which reality is it? Because it can't be both. You can't have this one happen and that one happen because they don't match up. There's there, this alternative outcome was not possible in the context of, of that storyline. But he comes back in the alternative timeline, so therefore it changed timelines. Now, I'm with you on this. So the interesting part about this, so when he did come back, he had his hood off because they, they get sent with a hood and then he's got the gold on the back. Now, what he did was, is you'll see, and again, spoilers galore, guys, and that's fine. So he kills the two mobsters or whatever because it's Ma Brand and all that stuff. He throws the mm-hmm. jacket on, puts the gold on the back so because he knew what he was going to, or the gold's always on their back. That's right. And then he jumps in the time machine, jumps back to meet him, which he knew would be him because... He's already done this before. That's the interesting part about the movie. It's a loop. Yeah. That's why it's called Looper, is because he lives mm-hmm. his perfect life because he's able to loop, go back. But if it's a loop, if it's a loop, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, 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 if it's no, a no, loop, no. how can there be alternate timelines? Well, there's not alternate timelines, and that's the that's point. That's what you just said. You no, just no, no, said no, no, that's no. a different time, a well, different timeline. Well, it time could be, but okay, and you're right. I may have misspoke. So what I think, though, that movie is trying to point out is that it's not a different timeline because this is one of the things about time travel, right, is that you don't jump back to your time. You jump back to an alternate timeline at the time that you jump back, okay? And it's that's, not a loop. Then well, it's not a loop. Right, right, right. I okay, shouldn't I'm, call it loopers. Okay. <laughs> no, it's called a loop because you close your loop. That's what it's about. Whenever they shoot their guy, they close their future loop, which which takes all of the. But he didn't. He didn't shoot his guy. No, no, no. But the other guys shoot their guys, and that's the point of it. That's why they're called loopers. Those guys do. He yeah. failed at his job. Okay, that doesn't mean he's not a well, looper. I got all of that. that just I means got all of that. That's looper. not what bothered me. That part's not what bothered me. It's it, it's that he could live this life. Uh huh. 
this long life, he falls in love, and then he's like attached to this woman who he just wants to save, essentially, because the thugs come and kill her eventually, because he wasn't supposed to go on living in the first place. I got all that. I got all the the sub storylines. It's just that he does get shot in one of those. Well, he gets shot in the. Is it? Is and that it what happens at the end? And it can't be. No, both. no, no. I agree with you on that. I I forgot then the end of it. Then, so he gets shot at the end and dies. Yeah, and in in one scenario he gets shot. Okay, then there's as his the older flaw. self. Okay, then I and got that, you. That's what pissed me off, and it happened early enough that I was like, mm, let's see where they go with this. And then when Bruce Willis goes on to live this glorious life in Japan or whatever, it was like, wow. yeah. Well, yeah, sorry, okay. that was a bit I'm, of a rant. No, 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 no. I'm with you because I was wanting to understand that as well. If if he dies at the end, which I can't remember because it's been even longer since I've seen it. I remember liking the plot, like you said. Oh, it was awesome. Yeah, the idea. And that's the thing with so many of these. They're awesome. It's a great storyline, but they just don't care about these paradoxes. And and they hurt your brain. I'll be the first to admit they hurt your brain to think about. Yeah. Um, But if you're going to invest time and effort and all of the 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 money you pay to actors and, and producers and post-production, like at least try, you know, and, and many of them just don't, they don't even try. And, and I guess I'm at the point now having studied time paradoxes for so long where I get apparently really agitated by that, perhaps more so <laughs> than I was aware personally. of until this interview. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you take it personally. I have, like, come I on. I might have just uh, gone into a roid rage there. And as no, someone it's fine. doesn't we, do steroids, that's probably, I don't know. I guess, I guess that's my, um, my trigger. You're in good hands. Well, bad, bad plot lines. It's very niche. Otherwise good movies and otherwise good movies. And Looper's was one of those. It was an awesome idea. You know, I had a uh, guy that worked on Boeing projects uh, for NASA, um, NASA contracts for 40 years. And so he said one of the best movies that got close, but he was kind of the same way about this, was that Mars movie um, with uh, Matt Damon. And he said the whole thing was great. He was like, that was awesome. But the big problem with it is, is there's no windstorms on Mars. So it's kind of like Hollywood has to do this to kind of give you a plot scenario. Now, I think there's other ways that they could have done that without the windstorm and fulfilled this guy's, you know, because he got, he was like, this sucks. You know, his name's Kurt Carlton, really cool guy. Um, but you know, he said that that was his big issue with it. And so I asked him, of course, about poking the hole in the suit and doing the Iron Man thing at the end. He said, no, that's, that's horse shit too. So, but that one's the one that's gotten it the closest. Now, if you look at movies like, um, you know, uh, back to the future and stuff like that, of course, you know, but there, there's interesting ones, but I think that yes, that one little oversight in Looper, especially that ruined a badass movie. That was such a cool movie. Yeah, except and, for and that you're right. Part. You know, we can suspend our disbelief in things where it's just supposed to be science fiction, and I do that all the time. I actually had to train myself to do that, um, and my wife trained me to do that because I'm always like, "Ant eh, no," but <laughs> if it's just full on science fiction, sure, yeah, I'll sit there and enjoy the hell out of it. It's when they try to yeah. make it realistic you know like uh there's then there's exceptions the the show dark comes it came out of germany the first two seasons of that were phenomenal they they clearly had a lot of consultants that were physicists that that explained time paradoxes and the the script is genius it gets away from them in season three um and, and as far as like space science fiction, the, the show, The Expanse, mm-hmm. uh, I think they just finished up a season recently. It's, it's very well made. It's very realistic in a lot of ways. The whole proto molecule thing is uh, is a bit off. But other than that, 
they do a great job trying to tackle acceleration, deceleration, gravity differences and different parts of the solar system. So it can be done. I guess it's just when they try to make it almost real or realistic or pretend that it's supposed to be this way and then just fail epically. Uh, and especially halfway through it, when when they kind of pull you in, like, oh, this could be interesting. Like, like again, not to keep coming back to loopers, but the storyline, the plot, it was awesome, genius. You know, yes. like you're closing your loop, and yes. you're you're this, you know, mobster, mobster. like mobster time travel. Hell That's yeah, how they get watch, rid of bodies watch... in the future. They send them back yeah. in time. It's brilliant. Genius. Yes, yeah, it's hard to find them, and and that's a big part of the show. Dark too, um, as these kids go disappearing, and and they find out they're disappearing in time, in oh, space. Cool. And, and yeah, there's there's a lot of ways to do stuff like that. So yeah, maybe I just felt like, you know, yeah, it's like you find out your girlfriend's cheating on you or something, <laughs> you know, like I got sucked in and then I was like, oh man, come on. Like I watched this much and now I just, I want to finish it, but I'm just pissed. And it's not even like she was cheating on you. The way that you felt about this, we're two heterosexual men. So I'm going to say this is like, you got, you were dating this chick for a while. She hadn't put out and then you finally get there, right? You've invested all this time. She's great. She's great conversationalist. Uh, She likes all the things you like. And then you get there. She's got a dong, you know, it's, it's that, that's how disappointed you were when we were just talking about Looper is discovering that your girlfriend has a dong and you're not into that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You're just not into that. No, not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but yeah, if you're expecting one thing and got another, that's all I mean, I think is the, the moral of the story here. And I was, I was expecting a well-made, especially cause it was highly recommended, you know, and we don't, we don't have to keep talking about Looper, but, but yeah, it was, it was that thing I was set up, uh, to be disappointed because people, kept recommending it and when i watched it i was sorely disappointed but yeah but they're they're the normies man like like us like most people out there they're just sitting there going i just want a cool movie if you get too paradoxical with it even even to proving it right at that point it it will turn people off because they can't mentally handle it i think that there's a lot of people that because then you now now these people at the box office have to go okay we're gonna have an awesome movie we're really gonna push the limits with this plot line but we can't go too far with it because we've got this whole demographic of dummies out here that just won't recommend it to their friends you see that right now too with uh a lot of ufo content i mean that could be a whole podcast episode unto itself is that there's there's an expectation to have entertainment, but also to educate. And that, that's where I am. I've, I've been working with a lot of producers on various things. And and finding that balance is difficult. Where where do you draw that line between entertainment and, and conveying information? It's hard with this book. You know, it's hard to write the book, as I mentioned earlier, just to have it sciencey enough to accommodate my colleagues, but not too sciencey that people are like, what the hell is he talking about? Right. And it's it's the same struggle bringing that to a documentary or a TV series. Where do you draw that line? How do you make it interesting and, uh, and, and entertaining and visually captivating, but still convey enough information that you get the point across? And, and it's almost like I've, I've written myself into a bit of a paradox unto itself because um, and, and it's just so different. We don't talk about time. We don't think about time. It's, it's going to be, challenging to bring that to the big screen in this ways and and i've i've been working with people who really want to who um share common goals and uh, producers who have thought the same thing for a long time others who are just interested in bringing the science to a science fiction thing as well but i 
it's it's hard you know and and i think that's the popularity of of ancient aliens is that they can say whatever the hell they want they don't have to worry about it being scientific <laughs> they they went down that road and that's good and they're really it provides entertainment it. but if you're actually talking about educating people on on real things it's not the best place to look in my opinion I'm with you, but I think the information, especially like covered in your book, that is fascinating to me. It is, it's more entertaining than some idiot getting up there and going, yeah, but I've got to fill this plot hole with this. It is so cool and so fascinating. No. Again, I haven't fanboyed out this whole time, but I'm gonna. Easily my favorite. Easily my favorite perception. I've read a lot of books on the subject. Easily my favorite is yours. It, it's one of those things that it's just so damn cool that people need to no, just intellectually wrong, raise their bond. <laughs> Am I right? It's just garbage. You're wrong. No, just, you've it wasted. sucks it. You can't, you can't make it entertaining unless you're going to sit down and read a book or listen to a book for 10 and a half hours yeah. uh, in multiple periods. But when you're talking about trying to wrap it into something, you can just present to the general public right no that's that's it's, it. it's a lot harder to make that leap you know and and because especially because we're so accustomed to just being fed things tv is a relaxing thing we want it to be that we don't want to think about it too much even pbs realizes this they started doing these shorts they're like five to eight minutes long and they're amazing it's about neuroscience it's about covid variants it's about uh dreams and it's super fascinating but they realize too you can't do this for too long or everybody's just gonna turn it off and go to bed. So, so to find a way to get this content in uh, a television or even documentary capacity is, is difficult. And I'll be the first to admit that. Um, but I, I think there's a way to do, it. I think there's a way to do it with all of these things. And it comes back to what you were asking me about my favorite paradox. If you're into those things and you want it to take your brain away, yeah, then it's perfect, you know, but, most people don't. Most people want to sit down and just go mindless and just uh, relax at the end of a hard day. They don't want to sit down and think about goddamn time paradoxes and well, shit. You know? Some of us do. So what about this? What if it is the chicken or egg thing? And you've already been so breakthrough with your ideas and bridging the gap between science and philosophy. What if you're the guy that goes, you know what? We're not pandering to the dummies. We're going to put something incredible out there that's going to blow your damn mind and you guys are going to enjoy it. And then you can just go watch the real housewives of whatever when we're done talking about this. You know, go take a break somewhere else. But I like these thought experiments, and I think you raising the bar of society could be what you're doing because the reason we're in the situation we are intellectually is because we don't relegate science to the forefront of, uh, you know, popularity. We, you know, we're starting to, again, with Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye or whatever, but I think with this subject in particular, and especially with these mind-expanding concepts that, that are fun to think about intellectually, be the pioneer, man. Don't worry about what other people say. Maybe make one and then make uh, your yeah, show for that's dummies. That's not how it works. I, I appreciate your uh, enthusiasm, but we're talking about executive producers. We're talking about investments. We're talking about money. And it, and it comes back to what you said, chicken and the egg. If there's not a market for it, it's not going to happen. If they can't sell it to the executives, if if uh, they're not going to be able to raise money to produce it, it's, it's not going to happen. And um, I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, I think eventually we'll get to that point and maybe investments and, in, you know, e education over the long term will do that. But right now, there's not a huge market for that. I, I, I agree there's a niche market. I appreciate that you're a part of that. I'm a part of that. But it's not enough to actually sell things on a mass scale right now. But who knows? Maybe in the future it will be. 
I, I've time traveled to the future. I've found out that you are actually <laughs> the number one filmmaker because of this yeah, concept, right. and right. we can just go ahead and do that. Well, I tell mm. you what, man. Um, I've already kept you a little bit past the time that we um, agreed upon here, but I really, really appreciate you. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, tell the audience where they can find you, and we'll wrap this up, brother. Uh, yeah, I got the uh, the old website and the social media, all of your standard platforms, which I. You know, I, I, I try to check and interact with people as much as I can. I have to take uh, mental health breaks from time to time, as most people do, and you have a check call. out from this fake reality that we've constructed around us. But for the most part, I really enjoy uh, oh, chatting with people and... Yeah, one of them. I'll link all that stuff in the show notes, guys. Oh my God, I had a border collie um for fifteen and a half years, man. We just lost him last year, but I oh, love I'm him. Sorry. He is great. It's the worst. It's yeah, awful. his name is Indica. The other one's Jake. He's kind of a border collie, um, Australian Shepherd mix. But yeah, oh. we just lost our dog in uh, January of last year. Oh. These guys uh, have you know nothing ever fills that gap, but they're no, we don't good deserve pups, them. Man. So. We do not deserve yeah. them. But I I think it's great you had a border collie. They're incredible, incredible they dogs. Are. Man. Yeah, I started doing ski drawing with them, which he loves. I got one of those harnesses. Oh yeah, and I'll go out on my cross country skis, and he'll just like pull me up and down the mountains. Hell it's yeah, super they fun. will. Boundless so. energy. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's good for both of us, but, um, yeah, no, just, you know, just Google me. Yeah. Know. Apologies. If you're I, interested, we... just, just Google it. I, I, <laughs> my, my web address is pretty obscure anyway. So I'll, I'm going to link all the shit in the show notes, man. So you guys just do the damn thing, go down there and look. I was just being courteous by asking you to do it. And then I saw a dog and of course I was like, ah, so especially a border collie, he's beautiful. They get me every time too. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm like, Hey buddy, what's going on? <laughs> can I pet that dog? Have you seen that video? Uh, no, I'll send it so. to you. It's brilliant. It's great. I nice. say it all the time now. Okay. Well, this has been a great show. Um, look again, uh, is it Dr. Or Michael or, uh, moneymaker Mikey P? What do you prefer? Uh, it's funny you say that. Cause my nickname growing up was Mike P Mikey okay. P specifically. So, um, yeah, whatever. I, I actually worked as a, a research assistant in Ohio state and somebody was like, are you Mike? Are you Michael? And I, how do you have two names? You know, I'd have to explain my whole life which yeah. one I am. I was like, I, I don't know. Just call me what you want. He's like, uh, Bill. I was like, sure. <laughs> Damn. Okay. So I was literally Bill for an entire semester working with these guys. He even introduced <laughs> me as Bill. I just assumed the identity of a Bill, which was great. If I already got two names, why not have three? You know. <laughs> so I was Mike, Michael, and Bill for about four months of my life. Uh, when I've lived in France, I'm Michel. Okay. So yeah, I, I don't care. Just okay. whatever. Just don't call me late for dinner, right? Oh, not what they used bah, to bah, say. Bah, bah, bah. He's got jokes too, guys. That's awesome. Uh, dude, thank you so much, man. Honestly, it's been a damn yeah, honor. Yeah, it was fun. Um, hopefully, I'll, chatting with you. I'll get you back on for your uh, new book whenever that comes out. So just hang on here, um, and then I'll chat with you just for a minute here when we hang up. But again, Dr. Michael P. Masters, Mikey P. Moneymaker, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. Yes, sir. Time travel. Am I right? Uh, Dr. Michael P. Masters, guys. Uh, all the ways to find him is linked in the show notes below. Uh, go check out his book. Like I said, it's it's my favorite theory. Uh, if I, you know, had to pick, and y'all know this listener-wise, uh, that that is my favorite, and he's the guy that wrote the book on my favorite theory. So go check it out. Uh, as well as for this show, we have a new feature on, which is a Patreon. You can actually go to patreon.com and hit uh, Expanding Reality there and uh, contribute a little bit. If you find the show valuable, go ahead and 
throw some love to your boy. It, it helps keep the show going. Uh, other than that, you can find us at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, as well as YouTube. Uh, this video will be up on YouTube. So just go to YouTube, type in Expanding Reality. That's where it'll be, and you're good to go. Uh, as well as if you want to email the show directly, it is going to be at expandingrealitypodcast at gmail.com. We love interaction with you guys. Y'all are so sweet, and we really appreciate the support and kind words. If you got any um, thoughts, observations, anything like that, time travel questions, whenever uh, Dr. Michael P. Masters comes back on, uh, I'll ask him for him for his next book that he's going to release. Uh, and other than that, guys, you know, pick up a piece of litter. Think about some time travel paradoxes. Take yourself out of your day-to-day. And uh, y'all just, in general, get out of the left-hand lane, buy a meal for somebody else. In general, guys, uh, in this time or another, go ahead, no time like the present. Y'all just be good to one another. We'll see you next time.